Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the good news emerging from Central America, where a narco-dictatorship is about to be transformed into a social democracy, now that the candidate of the criminal party, allied with drug dealers and death squads, has conceded in the face of an overwhelming defeat. Joining us from Honduras is Jared Olson, a writer and independent journalist based in Honduras, covering violence, migration and social struggle in Central America. His writing has appeared in The Nation, The New Humanitarian, El Faro English, Vice World News and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times, Honduras at Crossroads in Election to End Corrupt Rule of Juan Orlando Hernandez and another at the New Republic, What Happens After a U.S.-Enabled Narco-Dictatorship Ends. We will discuss the jubilation in the country and the hope that ordinary citizens will not have to fear for their lives from the gangs and the military, which will mean there will be a reduction in emigration to the United States, which has been driven by desperation. We will also examine the environmental cost of the palm oil and mining industries, who have had, up until now, a free reign to despoil and pollute. Then we'll speak with Robert McChesney, a Professor Emeritus of Communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, host of the weekly talk show Media Matters and co-founder of the media reform organization Free Press. He's the author of a number of books, including Blowing the Roof Off the 21st Century, Media Politics and the Struggle for Post-Capitalist Democracy, and the co-author with John Nichols of Dollarocracy, How the Money and Media Election Complex is Destroying America. His latest book is Rich Media, Poor Democracy, Communication Politics in Dubious Times. And he has an article at the Columbia Journalism Review. Only public funding can save local journalism, and that's democracy. We'll discuss his plan to revive journalism in this country where it began, at the local level, and how massive public investment could revive and re-establish a consensus about what is true and what is real, so that Americans will not continue to be divided, deluded, and ignorant about what is happening in their community and their country. And since I recently resigned in protest from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station, Background Briefing is now completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now from Honduras is Jared Olson, a writer and independent journalist based in Honduras covering violence, migration, and the social struggle in Central America. His writing has appeared in The Nation, The New Humanitarian, El Faro English, Vice World News, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. And he has an article at the Los Angeles Times, Honduras at the Crossroads in Election to End Corrupt Rule of Juan Orlando Hernandez. Orlando Hernandez and another at the New Republic, 
What happens after a US-enabled narco dictatorship ends? Welcome to Background Briefing, Jared Olson. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us in at least uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez's party have conceded, have they not? They conceded yesterday. That was a big concern, that they would simply ignore the results. But I guess the margin of victory was such that they had no choice. Yeah, so the night of the election, I was in Tegucigalpa um, at several voting stations, including in a very poor neighborhood. And it was very clear that Xiomara Castro, the popular uh, self-proclaimed democratic socialist opposition candidate and a woman, was winning, right? But few people wanted could believe that they would allow the opposition to win against the ruling national party right because in 2017 after widespread irregularities and a suspicious glitch in the voting system suddenly Juan Orlando Hernandez despite losing won the election right and between 30 and 80 people were killed in subsequent protests mostly by the military so that being said there was a massive sense of excitement and optimism on a Sunday night during the elections but at the same time anxiety because people were waiting for the fraud to happen. People were waiting for the repression, for something for the military to show up, but it didn't happen. Uh, Xiomara Castro very clearly, as the first round of votes were counted, uh, was winning so much so that it was already clear that she was going to win the elections. It was such a, a high lead over Nasri Asfara, the Juan Orlando Hernandez candidate. And as of yesterday, Asfara congratulated Xiomara Castro on her victory for in the elections. So it's now official that she will be the first woman president of Honduras. It's also remarkable because she is going to be a self-proclaimed democratic socialist president in what is essentially a far-right narco state. So you have lots of contradictions at play here. So behind the scenes, given that the U.S. has had, the State Department has played an extraordinarily, I just for the life of me don't understand how they so blind to what's been happening. I mean, initially, as you point out, they thought this guy was a, a bright, business-friendly, fresh face, etc. I mean, I don't know how long it took them to figure out that he was a narco dictator. But do you think behind the scenes, the U.S. Uh, is sending a somewhat different message, certainly a different message from the ridiculous message that Donald Trump said in 2019, declaring that Hernandez was an ally to the U.S., who was stopping drugs at every level we've never seen. And, of course, he made that statement just a few months after the president's brother, Juan Antonio Hernandez, was arrested in Miami and charged, I believe, with importing 120 tons of cocaine into the United States. With Juan Orlando Hernandez, he'd kind of become an embarrassing ally, right, who gave lie to the sort of drug war that's being carried out in Central America, in Latin America more generally, under the guise of the U.S., right? You see this contradiction where in his first term, he was already being investigated by the DEA for corruption and drug trafficking and using the Honduran military and police apparatuses to do so. But at the same time, the U.S. was training these same security forces to fight drugs, which makes would make someone wonder why they're training these forces in the first place, these same forces that carry out extrajudicial killings, widespread human rights violations. So you see this kind of contradictory policy playing out in Honduras, particularly. Uh, the leader of a, a Honduran special forces unit told me that his men were receiving U.S. training. This same unit uh, is accused of being a death squad. A former soldier in this unit fled the unit and said that he was drugged, that he was ordered to empty body parts into a river, that he saw bloody torture rooms on his base, 
and that they had a kill list of social movement leaders, right? And I think really what happened this time around is that the U.S. probably didn't want Hernandez's party to win, not because they suddenly became humanitarians with the people of Honduras, but because really it was kind of an embarrassing glitch in the whole facade of this drug war, right? We can't have this guy who's so clearly a clown, right? Who's so clearly implicated in the thing we're trying to fight. So I imagine that they're going to try to control Xiomara Castro and they don't want her to either A, go to China or B, be too far leftist, right? But this time around, I don't think they would have let Juan Orlando Hernandez's party steal the election simply because they didn't want to have this embarrassing ally uh, giving lie to this kind of murderous drug war that they're carrying out. And again, I'm speaking with Jared Olson, who is in Honduras. He's a writer and independent journalist based in Honduras, covering violence, migration and social struggles in Central America. His writing has appeared in The Nation. The new, the new Humanitarian, El Faro English, Vice, new, Vice World News, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. And he has an article in the Los Angeles Times, Honduras at the Crossroads in Election to End Corrupt Rule of Juan Orlando Hernandez, and another at the New Republic, What Happens After a U.S.-Enabled Narco-Dictatorship Ends. Now, it's my understanding, Jared, that the DEA have... Juan Orlando Hernandez on tape saying we're going to shovel cocaine into the noses of the gringos. Surely that would have got their attention. Yeah, so in Honduras, it's worth pointing out, um, it's, first of all, you have to, as we discussed, recognize that fundamental contradiction that the Pentagon is willing to work with these same uh, forces accused of drug trafficking while the DEA is investigating them. In Honduras, there's a little bit more cynicism about the DEA. Um, People, I mean, in Honduras, many people talk about how they believe the DEA is complicit. And as a journalist, I'm not going to comment on that. Um, I would encourage people to do their own research and read more about it. But the mere fact that that recording came out and the New York City court trial of his brothers has led many Hondurans to believe there's no way that the DEA didn't know about this or the DEA must somehow be tied up. There must be things going on behind the scenes that we don't know about if they were allowing this guy to stay in power. Well, when she first came in, Vice President Kamala Harris was briefed about Juan Orlando Hernandez, and she apparently was so shocked by the briefing, she said, we got to go get him. And she was immediately talked out of it. So what is that mechanism in our government? Why? I mean, obviously it's not. It's a little complicated arresting a head of state, but still, you just wonder what this reflex in the State Department is. Oh, we can't do that. Why? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, first of all, I think that indicates kind of the lack of knowledge that Kamala Harris has about uh, Central America in general. She was not already aware of that. And yet she's charged with, quote unquote, fighting root causes, uh, the root causes of migration in the region. But yeah, it is pretty complicated, right, uh, in terms of getting a head of state out of power. I actually, so... Over the course of this year, the specter of a potential extradition for Juan Orlando Hernandez after being voted out of office, if he could be voted out of office, because if his friend uh, was elected to the presidency, many assumed that, you know, just Vladimir Putin in Russia when uh, what was Medvedev or something was elected, that he would just remain in power in a de facto way. But he's been voted out and people are talking about, well, now is he going to get uh, extradited? And... Juan Orlando Hernandez is aware of this because despite the fact that Honduras 
is essentially a U.S. proxy state or has been over the last 12 years, so close to the U.S., one Arlander is striking out this year and suggesting that he would make stronger alliances with China, right? He gave a speech ostensibly saying that he wanted, it was ostensibly about vaccines, right? But he gave a speech saying that he would open new diplomatic uh, relationships with mainland China, with Beijing, right? And the message was clear. Uh, the message was that if you try to extradite me, I will take away Honduras as a U.S. proxy state. Now, I don't think the U.S. would let him do that. I think they would find a way to get rid of him before he could do that. But uh, many people are wondering, when's it going to happen? When's this guy going to get extradited? And it's funny because at the uh, the kind of spontaneous parties that filled the streets of Tegucigalpa, once it was clear Castro would win, there is a, a song that people would play that is like the sound of, um, what's the sound of the jazz music in movies where you go to New York City? It's, the, it's a song of New York City, right? Mm -hmm. People would play uh, where the audio says, all boarding the flight for New York City, Juan Orlando Hernandez, please come. And it's just, it's hilarious for the people because they want him, they want to see him in a court and in jail. So we don't know. We'll see what happens. Well, at least, and as your article points out, you mentioned the celebration, the fact that a country known for its extreme femicide and violence against women now has a woman present is, as you point out, itself worthy of celebration. I think so. And I don't want to pin it on Honduras because obviously, you know, sexism exists in all parts of the world. Right. But it is particularly nasty in Honduras. Um, there was a notorious case this year that was emblematic of lots of femicide where a woman, Kayla Martinez, was um, accosted by the police while she was walking home for no reason, which sparked a wave of protests. Um, but that kind of stuff happens all the time. And if it's not the police killing women, it's the police refusing to investigate the killings of women uh, because they don't care, right? Not that that's going to change under the Xiomara Castro administration, because again, you have all these entrenched corrupt networks of police who would let these crimes take place or commit them themselves. But nonetheless, I think that there's going to be more pressure uh, that will potentially reduce the kind of wave of femicide and sexual violence, violence against women in Honduras. Well, there's an awful lot of damage has already been done, though, to the environment, surely, because of his sort of laissez-faire policies and inviting in multinationals, and particularly those palm oil plantations. Apparently, the entire Pacific coast has been stripped of rainforests. And, you know, this is one of the biggest curses on the planet, are these palm oil plantations in Indonesia and places like that. We need rainforests to soak up the CO2, and a lot of people are alarmed about the, the rainforests in, in uh, Brazil being cut down. But it's been happening in Honduras, right, with aid and urging of this guy, Juan Hernandez. So I will clarify. Yes, you're correct. I, I do have to clarify some key points on that. Um, so one of the things is that the palm oil plantations in Honduras, which are vast, right, and the site of intense and murderous conflict, um, hundreds of people have been killed. I did a report for The Intercept uh, recently about how paramilitary groups, paramilitary death squads tied to the Honduran military have been killing off peasants who uh, oppose the corporate expansion of palm oil. It's worth pointing out, though, that these are not, in the case of Honduras and the Aguan Valley uh, conflictive region where I've reported extensively, it's not rainforest being cut down. It is former collective farmland that is being turned into palm oil plantations. And that's a long story, but 
still the difference is there palm oil is an extremely toxic kind of uh agricultural practice that fills the the groundwater with pesticides um that takes away biodiversity right and the consolidation of these palm oil plantations is incredibly murderous right like we said with the, the paramilitary groups that have killed these two groups have killed between them like 70 people right uh, that we reported on they're not transnational in this case I reported on Dinant. Uh, Dinant is a Honduran transnational corporation favored by the Juan Orlando Hernandez government. But it's worth pointing out that this is also a corporation that is supported by US dominated institutions like the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation of the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund. Um, and with Juan Orlando Hernandez in power, these kind of corporations have had basically a green light to do whatever they need to consolidate uh, these collective farmlands for their toxic, massive. African palm plantations. Well, it is not only, I mean, I, I stand corrected on, on the rainforest not being ripped down, but still, it, it's a, as you say, it's very toxic. And these monocultures are an absolute disaster. And for the life of me, I don't understand why there can't be an international ban on palm oil. How important is palm oil? I mean, is it how vital is it? It's, I mean, it goes into everything. It goes into plastics, it goes into soaps, it goes into all sorts of, into processed foods. Um, but on the note of environmental conflict, I want to say that you're still correct uh, that one of the legacies of the Juan Orlando Hernandez era has been immense uh, environmental destruction. So for example, I did a report for The Nation a year and a half ago, and this story is ongoing, about how in the village of Guapinol, uh, in a similar region to the palm oil plantations, but just a little bit off, in a national park, basically, the Warner Lender and his government illegally allowed for this Honduran mining company that was actually, we now know, supported by Nucor Steel, a pro-Trump steel corporation in California uh, that made a fake company in Panama to support this Honduran transnational. So with the, that being said, the Warner Lender and his government, the National Party, at three in the morning, the middle of the night, did an illegal move to resize a national park so that they could make an open pit iron oxide mine in this national park that's the headwaters for something of the order of 30 rivers in the region, right? Off of which farmers and fishermen have their livelihoods. So in the village of Guapinol, the people, the, the campesinos, the peasants, um, it has a different connotation, but the peasants have been fighting back against this mine and eight of them have been killed. You know, nine of them have been killed, right? None of those killings are investigated. Meanwhile, the Honduran military patrols through the community all the time and eight of them now are in jail and have been in jail illegally without a trial. It just started yesterday, actually, for two years. Um, they were arrested for protesting this mine under accusations of terrorism. So this is a kind of dynamic that plays out through all of Honduras, and it forces people to flee. It's not just violence that forces people to flee, although that's immense. It's the fact that if you're a peasant who depends on fishing, your livelihood is destroyed by a mine. You have nothing else to do. Of course you're going to leave. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Jared Olson, given that we mentioned Vice President Harris has been given the job of, of getting to the root causes of the dysfunction in these countries that's leading to emigration through Mexico into the United States, and obviously that's a, a difficult political issue for the Biden administration, and in general, the U.S. has become much harder and crueler in many ways during the Trump years, and immigration is not popular. So in terms of the of the landscape there in Central America, you've got the hope now that you can have democracy and maybe she can really clean up that place. 
But you've got El Salvador run by a neo-fascist who's now made the uh, the national currency Bitcoin. So that's an invitation for money launderers. And then you've got a kind of, you've had a narco-dictatorship in Honduras. I mean, you've got a narco-democracy in Guatemala, do you not? Mm-hmm. Can this reform with this new leader spread? Can this good contagion spread into those other countries, neighboring them, where you have really terrible leadership as well? So I think the first to start with is that it is remarkable that she's president. And because of that, the despair, at least for a little bit, is going to go down unless people will flee Honduras. I think part of the reason so many people flee, there are structural, physical, tangible reasons people flee. But one of the reasons that people flee as well is a sense of generalized despair. And when they have a government like they did with Juan Orlando Hernandez, they know that their problems won't be fixed, right? Now, I was discussing this with another journalist in El Salvador. Um, Now that Xiomara Castro has been elected, it's likely that at least for a few months, there'll be less people fleeing, right? Because they have hope that things might change that not everything is totally screwed in Honduras. For example, when Bukele was first elected in El Salvador, now things have gone south, of course, but he does remain popular there. But when he was first elected, he was extremely popular. And for a few months, this uh, journalist friend in El Salvador, Hillary Goodfriend, she noted that the immigration went down out of El Salvador simply because people felt that things could change. And I think that that's remarkable. That being said, I don't think that this is going to change anything in the rest of Central America. Um, Daniel Ortega has consolidated a a full-on dictatorship um, in Nicaragua that is unlikely to be overthrown anytime soon. Uh, In Guatemala, entrenched corrupt networks under Alejandro Diamate are extremely powerful and hard to resist. Um, There's currently a massive conflict over a mine in El Estor in Guatemala right now. And with Bukele, he remains immensely popular despite uh, being on the path towards outright dictatorship. So Unfortunately, I don't think this is going to influence things in the region, but it is a bright spot nonetheless. Well, Jared Olson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with Jared Olson, who's a writer and independent journalist based in Honduras, covering violence, migration, and social struggle in Central America. His writing has appeared in The Nation, The New Humanitarian, El Faro English, Vice World News, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. And he has an article of the Los Angeles Times, Honduras at the Crossroads in Election to End Corrupt Rule of Juan Orlando Hernandez. And another at the New Republic, What Happens After a U.S.-Enabled Narco-Dictatorship Ends? We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how public funding could save local journalism and American democracy. Pasajero Juan Orlando Hernández, con destino a la ciudad de Nueva York, favor de abordar por la puerta número 2. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert McChesney, who's Professor Emeritus of Communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and the host of the weekly talk show Media Matters and the co-founder of media reform organization Free Press. 
He's the author of a number of books, including Blowing the Roof Off the 21st Century, Media, Politics and the Struggle for Post-Capitalist Democracy, and the co-author with John Nichols of Dollarocracy, How the Money and Media Election Complex is Destroying America. And his latest book is Rich Media, Poor Democracy, Communication Politics in Dubious Times. And he has an article at the Columbia Journalism Review, Only Public Funding Can Save Local Journalism and Thus Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert McChesney. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And your uh, piece with uh, John Nichols is really very thorough, and it's worth extending it uh, longer than the printed version at the Columbia Journalism Review, where you have a lot more details. But in general, I'm in the, the public radio business, as you know, Robert, and there's an inchoate network of about 900 public radio stations, college and community stations across this country that are so under-resourced that they're basically being gobbled up by Christian radio. And basically, in these red states, all you have in terms of an alternative to Fox and Christian broadcasting are the college and community stations, because most red states still have college towns, you know? And I've always wondered why that can't be resourced. And now you've you're coming up with a with a kind of master plan, not necessarily along the lines of what we're talking about now, because of my particular interest in in public radio. But the local journalism initiative is desperately needed, overdue, and welcome. So thanks a lot, uh, Robert. Oh, I appreciate that. So tell us about the local journalism initiative and how it would apply in a broader sense. As your article points out, what, we're 44th in the world in terms of public media, government-funded media? Well, you know, let me back up and start uh, just at the beginning. The piece is really about the state of local journalism uh, in the United States because the United States has traditionally had a very strong local media. Our whole news media was based out of really daily newspapers across the country for 200 years. And that really was out of that grew our national media, out of that grew everything. But the overwhelming amount of actual original reporting that has been done historically, really through to the present day in the United States has been with daily newspapers. And um, that institution of having local journalism, ideally competing newsrooms covering the same community, has pretty much vanished in the last 25 years. Uh, and so we're in sort of terra incognita where we have a, an environment now where really there's very little journalism in large parts of the country. Most people are living in large ignorance about anything in their community that's going on because they lack the resources uh, really to stay on top of what's happening. And there aren't reporters and journalists covering what's going on in their city, their town, their state, their county. And it's, it's a part of the broader political crisis of our times. It's part of the broader crisis of where no one, people just sort of lie and get away with it because there's no one really credible providing an alternative or the truth <laughs> to, to what is like a facts fee alternative. So this is what the foundation is. And we, John Nichols and I have been working on this issue for 25 years. And we've been struck by how bad the situation has gotten uh, and how deeply 
uh, flawed the way we think about the class of journalism is, how we have to really rethink the whole process in the United States. And the, the point of this exercise in the Columbia Journalism Review, and then in the longer piece, which answers all the logical questions in Free Press, on the Free Press website, which is 20 pages long, uh, in both those pieces, we really want to say, look, Americans don't really understand why this is happening and what the American tradition is to deal with a crisis like the collapse and elimination of daily newspaper journalism and what sort of solution is rational in a democratic society. These are basic things we don't know that are better understood in most other successful democracies. Well, one of the concerns that I've heard about the lack of local journalism is that, for example, you mentioned competing newspapers. You had reporters that were covering council meetings, local council meetings. They don't do that anymore. So isn't that an invitation to sort of corruption, to put yeah, it think, bluntly? I mean, when you get rid of local journalism, uh, especially competing, but even just having a one newsroom town uh, in many cases, when that goes away, uh, the evidence shows some things happen really quickly. Uh, voter participation goes way down. Voter knowledge goes way down. Uh, corruption goes way up because people have no idea what politicians are doing with special interests in their community uh, so they can get away with it because uh, they don't fear a press that will expose their activity. Uh, it also hurts the local economy. Interestingly enough, things like interest rates stay higher without having a local news media. Uh, and economies get more stagnant and corrupt at the local level. Uh, and then there's a, all that research shows that then there's something even in a way more fundamental, which is that with the loss of, of daily newspapers, journalism and weeklies too, but especially dailies, um, a lot of what connected people to the city they lived in. So when I moved to Seattle, when I was a young man, I plugged into the two daily newspapers there along with other media and by being a newspaper reader, within a few months, I really had, I, I understood the community I lived in, what the issues were. Uh, if you were to move to Seattle today or any other city, that would be really hard to do. You would really not get much help with what passes for news media. And when I say this, I'm not talking about the print edition necessarily. It doesn't mean you have to have a ink stain on your hand to be consuming a newspaper. Most newspapers are not consumed digitally. The vast majority of their stories are consumed digitally. And when you use the term newspaper, it's really a catchphrase to say you have a, a newsroom of people working together to produce news rather than uh, ink and paper. And again, I'm speaking with Robert McChesney, who is a professor emeritus of communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and the host of the weekly talk show Media Matters and the co-founder of the media reform organization Free Press. He's the author of a number of books, including Blowing the Roof Off the 21st Century, Media Politics, and the Struggle for Post-Capitalist Democracy, and the co-author with John Nichols of Dollarocracy, How the Money and Media Election Complex is Destroying America. And his latest book is Rich Media, Poor Democracy, Communication, Politics in Dubious Times. And he has an article in the Columbia Journalism Review, Only Public Funding Can Save Local Journalism and Thus Democracy. So... Let's discuss then what caused this collapse. And we know that one of the more depressing statistics is that most Americans, I think something like three-quarters or two-thirds of Americans, get their news from Facebook, which is often just sort of recycled opinions and in, in within a sort of 
community comfort zone where nobody's challenging anybody's uh, opinions. They're just all reinforcing their own biases. What's the principal cause of this collapse of this? The point you're making, Robert, is that this used to be the backbone of journalism in this country. It was the essence of it, the heart of it. National journalism grew out of the local journalism. Uh, first, in defense of Facebook, and this is why I never used those words together in that order before <laughs> in my life. Um, Facebook doesn't have good stuff to put you to because there is no journalism that they could use if they wanted to. I mean, so they can't blame them that people who live in Peoria, Illinois, know nothing about Peoria, Illinois, because Facebook is guiding them to crappy stories. No one's covering Peoria, Illinois. So there's nothing for them to do. So they might as well just put some slop up there. They think people will lap up from their previous uh, uh, choices. Um, the, why do we no longer have journalists? I mean, you know, one of the things we do in the Columbia piece you reference is to, to sort of demonstrate the extent of the collapse. Well, we should make one point first. Um, when we talk about daily newspapers, most broadcast media newsrooms, television news, including the cable networks like MSNBC and CNN that people are familiar with, but certainly at the local level and local radio news to the extent it exists anymore, they get their stories from the daily newspaper traditionally and still, still today, because those are the reporters who actually break stories. Then they'll send someone out to do some follow-up from the TV station. TV stations rarely are breaking stories. So newspapers are important, not just because of what they actually do, but because all the other news media feed off them. And so one thing we wanted to do is determine how much has the collapse been in the United States and what we discovered is the best way to understand this is to take the, the total revenues of the daily newspaper industry, circulation and advertising, and figure that out as a percentage of the GDP of the economy um, and get a sense of how that has changed over the years. And for most of American history, um, daily newspapers were 1% of the GDP of the United States. That means out of every dollar produced of value in a year, $1 was a newspaper. That's a that's a huge industry. There are very few industries that are that large because you had you know thousands of newspapers with staffs all over the country, um, and that was the case all the way up to 1960. One uh, percent of the GDP uh, was accounted for with daily newspapers. Then it starts to fall fairly slowly down to seven uh, three quarters of one percent, uh, then down to half of one percent. Um, and this is during the 1980s and 90s that it's starting to fall. And the main reason for that is the best we can tell is that this was the era you had the massive wave of uh, media concentration. And so you had all these big chains and conglomerates form and they would close down competing newspapers. And so there were just fewer reporters. They had to spend less. If you have a monopoly in your town on newspapers, you don't need to have to spend a lot worrying about competition. That was the first wave. Then starting with the internet and especially social media, about 15 years ago, the bottom comes out of the cup. So we go from one half of 1% of GDP in 2005, say, uh, down to under 1%, which is where we are today. I mean, it's just completely collapsed. We're like one twelfth of what we were 50 years ago as a percentage of GDP. And it's, it's deteriorating by the day. Every day, just more people are getting laid off, more newsrooms are closing. So that's the situation we're in, uh, Ian. And that the reason for that, again, is primarily initially uh, uh, media consolidation and media monopoly, what the great Ben Bagdickian of Berkeley used to chronicle in his book, The Media Monopoly. And then since the late 90s through to the present, it's been, uh, it's been that the internet has wiped it out. And the reason the internet wiped out is not what people might think. It's not that the newspapers lost, um, their revenue because people went online. 
because newspapers can go online too and they produce the news there and people will go there. The reason was actually something really fundamental. It's the reason why it will never, uh, commercial journalism will never succeed again in this country. And that reason is that advertising abandoned newspapers once it could go online. Uh, advertising provided 60 to 80% of all the revenues of any daily newspaper in the country throughout the 20th century. And advertisers didn't support daily newspapers out of some sort of uh, civic uh, virtue. They did it because they had to. to. In order to reach the target audience they wanted to reach to sell their product, they had to bankroll journalism in newspapers. That was part of the deal. They had to pay a lot of money to get their ads in these newspapers. And then the newspapers used that money to put in uh, pay journalists to pay reporters. Well, by the, with the rise of the surveillance capacity on the internet, advertisers have discovered they no longer need to pay for newspapers, pay for journalism to reach their target audience. You know, an advertiser today and, and for some time now can simply go to Google or Facebook or some other platform and say, here's my company, here's my target audience, here's who I want to reach. And Google or Facebook will find that person wherever they are online. They don't have to be at a newspaper site. Uh, and it's much, much less expensive and much, much more effective for advertisers to do that. And for that reason, advertising is completely jump ship. And once that happens, uh, newspapers are, are dead meat. They're dead in the water, dead man walking, because just having subscribers pay for a newspaper has never been successful ever in our history. It requires either advertising or some other form of support to make it a commercially viable enterprise. Well, but that leads to the, the question here of, of what you're trying to do. With this local journalism initiative, you're suggesting that we have to renew a free press in this country and that the govern, government has to step in. Exactly. And what I think is surprising when people hear that, those words is they think this is some like complete rejection of everything America stands for. Uh, that this is like something imported from some distant, weird place that, you know, American-type people don't hang out in or like. Uh, and in fact, the great irony is, and we demonstrate this in the longer piece you referred to, but it's also talked about in the Columbia Journalism piece, uh, what we say is we have to return to our roots. We have to actually follow the way our Constitution was written and look at what the people who created this country thought about the press and the role of the government with the press and if we do that, we will adopt the, pl the plan that John Nichols and I propose in the Columbia article. Well, let's talk a little about that plan. The plan basically is that since there's no advertising support, no one can make money doing journalism, we have to give up the illusion that we, we try to rejuvenate some sort of commercial industry. It's not coming back. It's just dying. Uh, right now, most newspaper chains are being gobbled up by hedge funds that are stripping them for parts and running them into the ground. There's no actual investment in new journalism. That's No one thinks you can make money doing that. The investor community is jump ship. And the good news for us politically is that if we tried to do something we're proposing uh, in the local journalism initiative 20 years ago, there would have been huge corporate media lobbies opposing it. Now there's no commercial corporate media lobby opposing it because there's no one there making money in this area. This is like, this is just not a, a lucrative area. So what we say is embrace the fact that um, uh, this is not a commercial enterprise anymore and go back to what it really was the first hundred years of Amer American history when it was heavily subsidized by the federal government through postal subsidies. And just embrace the fact that it's gonna require public money because this is a public good. 
A public good is something that society needs, but the market cannot generate in sufficient quality or quantity. And journalism fits that. It's, it's the case perfect uh, uh, photo of exactly what uh, a public good is in America today, now that advertising has left the field. And so what we need to do is set a budget uh, for journalism and distribute it equally across the entire country at the county level, uh, and then let the people in every county vote for whatever nonprofit news media they want to receive the funds. And then they will elect basically their local uh, nonprofit news media that will be the reporters for their community. So, uh, Robert McChesney, let's take a brief station break and we'll be back continuing this conversation after a brief break. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And we are continuing the conversation with Robert McChesney, a professor emeritus of communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and the host of the weekly talk show Media Matters and co-founder of the media reform organization Free Press. He's the author of a number of books, including Blowing the Roof Off the 21st Century, Media Politics and the Struggle for Post-Capitalist Democracy, and the co-author with John Nichols of Dollarocracy, How the Money and Media Election Complex is Destroying America. And his latest book is Rich Media, Poor Democracy, Communication Politics in Dubious Times. And he has an article the Columbia Journalism Review, Only Public Funding Can Save Local Journalism and Thus Democracy. So one of the things that I keep repeating, and I guess it's to some extent a kind of motto, if you will, for my program background briefing is that we're trying to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. So just run with that, if you will, in terms of your initiative, because this is the frightening thing, that we have open propaganda now in this country. It's not just the Russians manipulating us. It's a lot of right-wing media like Fox, etc., and Sinclair that are just outrageously propagandistic. So is there a way in in terms of what you're suggesting here that would also be of benefit? Because it used to be that there was a consensus in this country about what is true and what is real. And for the life of me, I don't know how you can run a country when there's no consensus about what is true. I agree. And I think that gets to the heart of the problem that we're trying to solve here. Uh, and, you know, we see something's gone off the rails in the last decade. I mean, one way to look at it is to look at conspiracy theories. It used to be that if you had a conspiracy theory, you actually had to try to mount evidence to make it believable. Now that's no longer, now you just make it up and just would go with it. And the fact that there's no evidence for it is irrelevant because evidence is just in one other person's sort of fairy tale. Uh, so you don't you don't have to really back up anything. And I agree that this, you can't really have a democracy or a functioning society uh, if you have basically no understanding that there's right and wrong, true and false, uh, that there can't be a debate where you can be on solid ground with other people, that you're sort of on a raft in the middle of the ocean 
uh, throwing spitballs at each other. And as a result of that, you know, that's what drives this to a large extent. At the very beginning of the long piece, we have a great quote from Hannah Arendt, basically, that says, when you don't have a free press any longer, it's not that people start believing lies, it's that they simply don't believe anything at all. And that's really the zone we're in. When you don't believe anything at all, you're, you, you're easy prey for people who want to push propaganda. Uh, and that's the exact moment we're living in right now in the United States. And we, we view the local journalism initiative as exactly taking the, the way to solve that problem and therefore make it possible to have a functioning democracy again. It's really, uh, in our view, mandatory to do this. It's not really an option. It's hard to imagine having a functional democracy if we have a society where people have no idea what the hell is going on. Uh, and if there's no one really digging and reporting on people in power and how they operate and reporting on people out of power and what sort of lives they're actually leading. Uh, all this information which you need and which is considered standard uh, for a self-governing society is now barely exists or hardly exists. It's just on the fringes, uh, if that. So what we do is by creating all sorts of nonprofit uh, journalism in every county in the country, uh, what we're able to do is then have people competing to cover news stories in their community and serve their communities. And they, if they don't do a good job, they will lose the next election and they will lose their support and they'll be out of business. So that you you have to like do your job well. Now, some people argue, well, gee whiz, in some places people might vote for you know charlatans and liars and white supremacists. And that's possible. Uh, but being nonprofit and with the sort of just basic elementary content uh, rules, you have to produce fresh content five times a week. Uh, it's nonprofit. You can't make a killing on it. You can't be a front group. You'll really weed out most of the charlatans. And uh, it, every reason to expect that it will largely quickly revolve to people who are serious about covering their communities. Well, in terms of conspiracy, it's already metastasized into the government itself with Loren Bobbitt and uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And this is a, a huge problem in the sense that not only do you have conspiracy theories out there, you've also got what's called reality shopping, where liberals go to MSNBC for their information, conservatives go to Fox for their information, Christians to Christian broadcasting. One of the really useful things about the BBC and the Canadian equivalent and the Australian equivalent is that it kind of sets a standard about what's real and what's true. So is that, at the end of the day, what you're trying to do here at the local level? To some extent, but I think, you know, you've hit on a good point. If you go to, my wife's Norwegian, so I spend a lot of time in Norway. Um, and if, if, in fact, you called me there once, I remember a few years ago, Ian, not knowing I was there. And uh, so if you go to a country that has a spends a lot of money in public media that takes that ranks very high in, in terms of being a democratic nation. Uh, what you find is that it's not like every news medium has like tries to be quote unquote objective and tell the exact same accurate story. It's understood that there are many different stories that can be covered, many different perspectives of the story, all of which are legitimate. Uh, but they do tend to have common factual grounds that everyone understands. And so the truth comes out not simply by having everyone trying to do the exact same thing as everyone else. Then you don't really need five news media in a town. The truth comes from everyone trying to get at the truth from their perspective, and then people can sort of find their way with that information. The most democratic societies historically have been societies with actually pretty partisan press systems. 
but they have a common ground that undergirds the whole thing. So you can't get away with making up the sort of garbage we now see commonplace in this country. No, indeed. Well, we, we sort of have a sort of homogenized, bland version. And I think that the newspaper owners decided that if half their, half their readers are Democrats and half their readers are Republicans, then they'll, they'll go right down the middle and say on the one hand and on the other hand, whereas in Europe and the UK and other countries, I mean, except for this, the curse of Rupert Murdoch has taken over two-thirds of the press in Australia, but, you know, I lived in France for a while. You know, you had conservative newspapers all the way across the spectrum to Maoist newspapers, you know? And you're right. You got a, you got a full spectrum of political views, but somewhere in the midst of all that is the truth, you know? And you can figure it out for yourself. Precisely. And I think that's where we want to get. We want to, you know, so in our view, we should set the budget at one uh, 0.15 of 1% of GDP, which would be a little over $30 billion a year split among all the, uh, every county in the country get the uh, exact same amount per person. And so that would mean in a county, like what's the, uh, you live in, uh, you live in LA, right? Right. Well, LA's population is enormous. <laughs> LA's like a, not a very good example for the rest of the country because the budget would be so huge. Let's take a county with a million people. I don't know, what's Riverside County or something like that, or I don't know, Santa Barbara County. It's a million people. It would have a budget of roughly $100 million to support its uh, non-commercial, non-profit journalism media. And so you'd have an election every three years, and there'd be candidates who would qualify by meeting the, the criteria and signing contracts to on, that they would honor this certain criteria. Uh, and... But of that, you probably are going to come out with three or four or five really well-funded newsrooms to cover that community. And everything they produce would automatically become free to the public online. Everything produced goes instantly into the public domain. Uh, the theory is that the public's going to pay for it. You pay in advance. And then once it's produced, everyone has access to it for free. So goodbye paywalls, goodbye firewalls, goodbye all those walls. Uh, if the government pays for it, if it's public money that creates the resources for this journalism, um, it, once it's produced, it has to be uh, made available to everyone for free immediately. But you could have advertising for local industries and restaurants and stuff like that, couldn't you? Sure. Um, you know, I think based on what we know about advertising, you get some advertising. I don't think that's going to be a big factor. I think right. the days of advertising are in our rearview mirror. Right. But in general, though, how do you get the Congress to get this off the ground and get the $30 billion? Well, this, how, do you, this is... how do you make people recognize that no more propaganda, you know, it's for the health of the nation, we've just got to have a consensus about what is real and what is true, and we all got to swallow the medicine together? Well, yeah, we also, you can't have a functioning society. People can't even, have no idea how power works in their own community, their county, their state. They can't name their governor. They have no idea what the key issue is being voted on. No one's tracking the commercial interests of the richest people in the state with what the government does. If you don't have that being covered, you're not living in a democracy. I don't care how what sort of elections you have. You're living in something else. And it's not a place, what I'm seeing so far, that I want to live in or most people I know. And that's the strong point of making the case here. The problem, I think, is widely understood by everyone that something is wrong here. 
And they, I think many people understand when they think about it, but it doesn't take long, that not having a credible journalism system, uh, having really, even people who try hard are ignorant of what's going on in this country, especially in their state and community, that that's got to change. And just that changes, nothing else really matters too much. Uh, so it, it's really an issue that people gravitate to. The hardest problem we face, uh, it used to be that there'd be commercial newspaper lobbies, big chains like Gannett and Knight Ritter that would oppose it, or big media conglomerates that would oppose it. Since it's no longer profitable to do journalism, that's less of a concern. Uh, they, won't, they might not be gung-ho, but they won't be opponents to it. Uh, the biggest problem we have is people say, well, America never, uh, giving money to news media, that's that's opens the door to propaganda, authoritarianism, uh, Orwellian, uh, dystopian existence. That completely un-American. And um, as you probably know, Ian, by reading the longer piece, and it's alluded to in the short Columbia journalism piece that just came out, um, actually in American history, the entire press system was subsidized by the government massively for the first hundred years of American history. And it was intended to do so. Uh, the US post office was created, and it's in the constitution to be created, primarily to be the distribution arm for every American newspaper for the first hundred years of American history. That's what it did. 90, right. Over 90% 90 of the weighted traffic of the, of the post office was newspapers. In newspapers, post offices in the 1830s or 40s, they would deliver mail three times a day, six days a week oftentimes, and most of that was newspapers. Right. Uh, over two thirds of their what they carried were newspapers. And the reason why we say that the government bankrolled it is that newspapers were heavily subsidized. You know, a normal letter costs 20 times what a newspaper cost, even though a newspaper was heavier. They wanted to subsidize it because they thought it was crucial to have as many newspapers as possible. And the debates in Congress are explicit about this. This is something they understood they had to do if the society was gonna hang together. If you're gonna have a self-governing society, a republic, you had to have this heavy subsidy to spawn uh, a news media that would be the basis of your political culture. So the lo just in the last minute here, the local journalism initiative could revive the post office, right? Uh, if you it's get rid same, of Louis, Louis to Joy. It's the exact same principle. And the post office would oversee the elections. Uh, it, I think the advantage the post office has in being sort of the supervisor is that it has physical presence in every county in the country. It is the most locally based everywhere. Uh, so if you want something that's based at the county level for elections, uh, uh, that's the ideal institution to have it at. Well, Robert McChesney, I thank you very much for this discussion because it's a very important one. And I thank you, Ian, for uh, having me on. And again, I'm speaking with Robert McChesney, who is a professor emeritus of communication at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and the host of the weekly talk show Media Matters and the co-founder of the media reform organization Free Press. He's the author of a number of books, including Blowing the Roof Off the 21st Century, Media Politics, and the Struggle for Post-Capitalist Democracy, and the co-author with John Nichols of Dollarocracy, How the Money and Media Election Complex is Destroying America. And his latest book is Rich Media, Poor Democracy, Communication, Politics in Dubious Times. And he has an article in the Columbia Journalism Review, Only Public Funding Can Save Local Journalism and Thus Democracy. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. If you missed any of today's program or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage you to rate and review us on those platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Martin Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.